0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. What forces have shaped the evangelical culture, and how can understanding them shape our future? Author and scholar Karen Swallow Pryor joined us on the podcast to discuss her recent book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Karen talks with us about the history of evangelicalism and the way Victorian influences impact its expression even today, helping us to consider what ideas are Christian and what are merely cultural. Karen also offers some sound advice for those who are beginning their academic careers. And if you listen to the very end of the podcast, you'll hear an excerpt from our conversation in which Karen shares thoughts on responding to the pressures that come with life as a woman who hasn't had children. I think you're gonna enjoy this conversation. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Karen Swallow Pryor is the award-winning author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. She is a frequent speaker, a monthly columnist at Religion News Service, and has written for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Vox. She is a contributing editor for Comment, a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, and a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I am really excited to talk about your book, The Evangelical Imagination, but first, I'd love to spend a few moments hearing about your life as a professor. Your name, I think, is very likely familiar to our listeners who are mostly connected with academic life in one way or another. So I'd just love to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your path into academia and teaching.
1: Hmm. Well, it was really um, quite um, accidental or providential, not a plan. Um, I did not grow up in an academic family by any means. Um, I just simply loved reading, uh, grew up with my nose in the books. And uh, when I went to college, um, ended up becoming an English major. I did not know what I wanted to do. I I knew when I went into college um, that there were two things I didn't want to do. And those two things were nursing and teaching. Um, <laughs> and I I don't know. I think I'm old enough. I don't know why I was, I had that in my head, but I think I'm old enough where those were sort of the two things that um, were allowed for women or expected of women if they did work. And so for, I just think I just said I wasn't going to do those two things. So I had all kinds of other ideas, um, but when i graduated with my english degree i didn't still didn't know what i wanted to do and so i just on a whim applied to my state university's phd program and i got in and and i just wanted to read more literature and um i didn't get a teaching assistantship or research assistantship right away but then i did after um a semester or two and so that's when I started to teach. And that's when I discovered what I was created to do. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, just took that journey of of finishing my PhD, which took a long time teaching along the way, and just um, have never really looked back since.
0: Can you, can you tell us a little bit about any challenges that you've had along the way or any things that have been particularly joyful about your career? Hmm. Well,
1: I think what was challenging um, is all rooted in that I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. You know, I had no I it was, I had no advice or mentorship, like I said, coming from a non-academic family. Also, being a Christian, entering into academia um which i didn't really know was at that time and that place pretty hostile to christianity so i was very naive in every respect and so and i did, i did not know what i was doing academically spiritually or anything um so i kind of um bumbled my way through uh and learned a lot along the way but also when i when i did um finish i was totally open um, to either going into Christian education or going into secular academia. And I really thought I would do the latter because Mm -hmm. I was so, I was so accustomed my whole life of being like the only Christian in my school among my classmates, among my friends. I just thought I would continue that. Um, but I did get an academic uh, appointment at a, at a Christian school, um, where I served for, um, over 20 years. And I just, fell in love with teaching Christian students how to think about literature, mm-hmm. how to think with a biblical worldview, how to love literature, to love God, to love life with, ev- with everything and to worship him in whatever ways he made them and whatever passions he gave them and in whatever disciplines. And so um, being able to use my um my passion for literature to serve the church in that way was really, um, probably just like the biggest blessing and and grace. And again, it wasn't something that I sought. it wasn't something I planned. Um, but it was, it's just been a wonderful ride.
0: Well, and I can hear your enthusiasm in your voice as you talk (laughs) about that. That's so, that's so great. And, you know, many of our listeners are maybe women starting out, their academic training or you know starting out in grad school so what advice would you have for a woman beginning her career in study and teaching
1: yeah i would i again i felt i was very alone in many respects um and so and i didn't even know what i didn't know to ask so i would say you know find not just one person in your life but maybe different people whether you know someone who's a christian academic that you that can not just answer your questions but even help you ask the questions that you don't know how to Mm -hmm. ask um and you know and 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 professors go to professors that you've had or will have um in your program and ask them for professional advice um and just again I, i think it's just more that you don't know the the things to ask that you don't know. And so if you seek out multiple people who offer different um, sets of experiences and um, and perspectives, then that can help you um, better navigate your way. So just reach out, ask questions. Um, not everyone has the time um, ability to like be a formal mentor and that can scare people away. But if you reach out with specific questions, um, People can generally answer those. And then that can lead to more conversations and maybe more mentoring um, that you might not even have asked for.
0: That is great. And I, I really like what you're saying about getting to understand what questions you don't even know you need to ask. And mm-hmm. I actually think that is a great transition into your book, The Evangelical Imagination. I think that you are helping all of us in this book to ask new questions. Um so can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and why you decided to write it at this time in history? Mm.
1: Yeah, so there are um, a couple of of threads there. Um, so one is that, as I already mentioned, I taught at an evangelical university for over two decades so got to know evangelical students you know several generations of them i guess um and got to see what it was like for them to grow up in the evangelical subculture which i i did not um, and you know for good and bad but you know a, a lot of a lot of bad i was walking watching a lot of my students um kind of walk away from the faith or shift or change or doubt or reject um the faith over the years whether you know sooner or later um and so that concerned me as i said before i i'm very passionate about teaching biblical worldview and um and because i love to think and to me that's that's just thinking christianly and i would you know kind of say well i i, I taught them i taught them how to think <laughs> why, why why is it did it not take hold and so um in the you know, about 10 years ago I first encountered um the uh the liturgical anthropology of James K. A. Smith, who, you know, his mantra is kind of you are what you love, or that, you know, we are um desiring creatures before mm-hmm. we're thinking creatures, we're not heads on sticks. And that's when it started to click with me that I could teach my students how to think correctly or how to answer the questions correctly. And that works for me because that's just how I how I am. Um, but if that's not fulfilling their desires as that's not shaping um their character and their hearts which for many of them it's not then that's why you know I'm, i i was failing to reach them or we the church were failing to reach them because they are learning in our culture to desire other things as as we all learn from our culture what and how to desire yeah. and so um that's, so So I started reading not just Smith, but Charles Taylor and his work on social imaginary and uh, the secular age. And so putting all those things together, I would notice in, in teaching, uh, particularly my Victorian literature classes, that A lot of the literature we were reading from that age, my students would say, well, that sounds just like what I was taught, you know, the sexual double standard or the separate spheres for men and women or, you know, the emphasis on duty and earnestness and all of these things that characterize the Victorian age. So we just started asking together the question, well, well, what, you know, what really is of the Christian faith? What's really in the Bible and what's just simply Victorian? Um, and so there's a you know, the Victorian age was largely um, shaped by the evangelical movement from the from the century before. And so that was kind of um, this the the nugget that began the book is just saying, okay, uh, let's let's kind of strip away what's just cultural. And in this case, you know, Victorian, um, and what really is Christian, and how can we begin to ask those questions? Because we are we are creatures of culture. There's no way we can not be influenced by our culture. But as Christians, we have to kind of um, discern the difference between um, cultural, our cultural imaginations, and ones shaped by the Bible.
0: Yeah, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners for you to define or describe this social imagination what, what that's about.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great, and and really the book is, you know, a lot of people might just hear the title and think, and, and some have, you know, assumed oh, it's about, um, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien (laughs) or something. I'm like, no, 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 it's not, you know, it's really about the social imaginary, uh, which again, as a, as a term, um, used by Charles Taylor, and he defines a social imaginary, and there, there's never just one, but um, a social imaginary is a pool of, of precognitive Concepts, dreams, visions, narratives, stories, myths, metaphors that are kind of lurking underneath the surface because they're, we've inherited them. They're just part of our culture, but we might not ever even be aware that they're there, sort of driving our assumptions and our expectations um, in ways that we we don't even. Re- realize and so um so i'm just sort of in this book saying okay well what are sort of some of these assumptions or unexamined um uh ideas that underlie the evangelical movement that we just sort of assume um because we've inherited them over 300 years but we we don't really stop to say where did they come from what are they doing and where have they gone wrong and I just try to do that with a few of these sort of central metaphors in evangelicalism throughout the book.
0: You give a really helpful analogy of a house. Can you can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, and and I really I, I this this analogy comes from um, the movement that that many undergoing it called deconstruction, which is a word that's fraught with controversy and and you know and and many people you know. Embrace it. A lot of people reject it, but it's a very helpful metaphor because it describes, you know, this this uh, this process that I think we should all do. Um, it, it you know, it doesn't have to lead where it does for some people. But if we think of a house which is constructed, um, and and the Christian faith is constructed by a God and His Word, and then cultures added on um so the metaphor of the house is that we adorn um, the structure of the house the choice the, the beams the flooring uh, we adorn it with tile and rug and paint and paper wallpaper and paintings and all kinds of things and we never see what's underneath until something goes wrong or we want to fix it or we just want to even change something and we and, and we can look underneath and we might find out when we do that um that you know everything's okay we might find that out but we also might find out that there are parts that are that need repair or that are rotten and need to be gotten rid of entirely. And that's um, kind of the controlling metaphor of what I'm doing in this book is, you know, trying to figure out what what's really good and solid and we want to keep and what uh, do we need to get rid of?
0: Yeah, that is, I found that really helpful. And I'm, and it, you bring up so many interesting, you know, in your chapters, you bring up lots of these pools of um ideas or um images that we connect to and i really want to get into this but before we do i really think it will be important to define evangelical because that um that's complicated these days can you and you have several different um definitions that you point to in your book so can you talk a little bit about how you define evangelical
1: yeah i mean my starting point um is um bebington's definition it's called the bebington quadrilateral i think it's some pretty widely accepted um with different tweaks here and there um or additions or deletions or so forth but basically and i include some of those but david bebington who is you know a, a living church historian and and again has what's the most widely accepted definition just defines the evangelical movement um over 300 years i mean looking at its beginnings in the 18th century throughout modern Britain and America, and says that, um, you know, whether it's regardless of which denomination it's in, because it's in, you know, cross denominations across time, across countries, um, he says it is characterized by four emphases, and that is an emphasis on conversion, an emphasis on the Bible as God's, you know, authoritative word, uh, an emphasis on the crucifixion of Christ as the center of our our, our understanding of our faith, and then a spirit of activism, um, which is so interesting because uh, I that's the one that I think most people would kind of might kind of raise an eyebrow at. But um, you know that manifested itself early on in the the first you know sort of generations of evangelicals in missions work abolition, especially in Great Britain. I mean, not all evangelicals were abolitionists, but um, the Wesleys were, and they were great leaders. And even today, I mean, on both the left and the right among conservative evangelicals and liberal evangelicals, that is like, they are, we are activists, um, whether it's social justice issues or abortion or whatever it might be, or just or just spreading the gospel. I mean, that is at the heart of, I think, what it means to be an evangelical. And, um, you know, it is controversial, as you said, and a lot of people are rejecting the term or say that the term is, you know, has because it's been so politicized in recent years, it's it's poisoned and 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 that all those things may be true. Um, and yet, when I think about myself and my my faith, um those four things that Bebbington identifies, that's regardless of which denomination I'm part of or what I call myself, like those things still define me. And so if someone comes up with a better with a better term, Maybe the historians will. That's fine. But I still I still am a Bebbington evangelical.
0: Yeah. Well, and you're the uh, the way you describe this all is really helpful, I think, to give context and a framework for our discussion. So um, I would love to start with one of these uh, pools of ideas. And you have a chapter on testimony. This was all you know, this whole book was very interesting to me. Because, you know, I've been connected with Interversity Christian Fellowship for 25 years, but I grew up Catholic. And so mm. I feel like there are still some things that I've never really fully understood about evangelical culture. Um, but here in this chapter on testimony, you point out uh, that print media cultivates a linear and sequential frame of mind, which is the kind of mindset that really leads to these before and after stories of faith development and you, you write evangelicalism was in many ways, the product of a reading culture. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about mm. this. Oh,
1: okay.
0: Just a little. All right. So <laughs> I could do
1: <laughs> like hours on this. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, so my period of study is primarily 18th and 19th century. And so that is what we would call print culture is the area and, 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 in English history, British history, not American, but there, you know, lots of overlap there. But um, that's the peri- period when the novel, another er- of my areas of expertise, developed. And so, um, evangelicalism arose al- right alongside the emergence of print culture and the novel. Um, and so, this idea of not only narrative and that before and after, but even what what the first novels did uh, was to um, cultivate this evangelical idea that every person matters, every every soul, every individual, not just of like the you know the of royalty or the aristocracy, but the common person, someone like David Copperfield, someone like Pamela in Richardson's novel, someone like Jane Eyre. That's why so many of the earlier novels are named after a lowly, ordinary everyday person because evangelicals emphasize the importance of this and so as evangelicalism grew and developed so too did print culture and the novel and this idea of testimony like telling our stories you know great novels um and again they've uh, you know a lot of things have happened to novels and the modern and postmodern era, but the early ones were really about testimonies. They were tales of progress um, of, the, of of a spiritual journey, such as Pilgrim's Progress, which is not a novel, but is a precursor to the novel. Um, and yet, if you read um, Bunyan's other great work, which was so influential, which I talk about a little bit in the book, um, his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding, um, that testimony is not, like, clear and straightforward. I mean, this guy's journey was, like, full of, of fits and starts and, like, is this the moment of conversion or is this one? Is this when he's really safe? Like, it's it's not as clear um, or as linear because this is, you know, early. This is, like, the 17th century before novels came about in early print culture. And so even Bunyan, this great... Ex- exemplar of the spiritual autobiography and of the testimony tells it gives a testimony that's pretty messy and pretty kind of like forwards and backwards and and now we are a lot neater in the way we tell our stories partly because we have this formula that we've come up with that we can stand up and share in five minutes in church um but also partly because the novel really sort of presented for has presented for a couple of centuries this this model of telling a story in kind of a straightforward linear way in the same way that we read most things now that we live in print culture if you go back to medieval times um and you know the the stories of, of romances and fairy tales um they're much less linear and much less logical than the kinds of things that we read today like novels and newspapers and even you know Facebook posts and, and Twitter feeds. Um, so that's like a very short version of what I'm talking about there.
0: Well, and I thought this was so interesting because, um, well, I, I guess one of the questions that came up for me as I was reading this was, where is the space for mystery in our stories? And uh, I mean, you give the example of of Bunyan's um, testimony book, but it seems like it's one of the things that we are maybe rediscovering in evangelical culture. What are your thoughts on, like, where's the evangelical space for mystery?
1: Well, I have lots of thoughts on that.
0: In fact, um, I,
1: uh, I just started a substack newsletter. I'm not sure when this will air, but my second newsletter is going to be, um, you know, th- these are short. It's not like a book, but it's, it's centered on um, mystic, mystery mm-hmm. and mysticism. Um so evangelicalism is helpful to remember is really just kind of like um part 2 of the Protestant Reformation, right? Evangelicalism was kind of like, oh wait, we had this reformation, um we forgot some of the things, so let's revive them. It's it's sort of like that. Um and so the reformation really was a you know it was as a, as a Protestant, you know, I, I think it was very needed. I'm very thankful for it, but it really was sort of a correction of the lack of, of doctrine and rigor and focus on, on the scripture. Um, and, but it also, it coincides, not coincidentally <laughs> um, with modernity, right? So modernity and the enlightenment were all emphases on logic, science, rationalism, empiricism, Um, away from mystery and so evangelicalism is kind of in that flow it's in that stream and so in as much as the protestant reformation de-emphasized mystery in favor of rationalism and reason and empiricism so too did evangelicalism but part of what it means to come to you know the end or the latter part of modernity or to be postmodern, as some people would say, and I might say, Um, part of that is to, um, well, actually, I think the best way to define postmodernity is to say it's a rejection of modernity's rejection of (laughs) mystery and, you know, the the supernatural Mm -hmm. and so forth. And so uh, I do think to sort of answer the end of your question, you know, are we making room for that? I, I think Yeah, I I think, yeah, I see younger theologians and thinkers and philosophers um, and even, you know, house committees uh, dealing with some things that that are beyond, uh, you know, the ability of reason and rationalism to explain. And of course, Christianity is beyond those things, too, because, you know, otherwise we end up with Thomas Jefferson's Bible where he cuts out all the supernatural parts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay, well, we could talk about this topic for a long time, I think, but I want to move on to your chapter on domestic life. And in this chapter, you describe the rise of the domestic ideal, which can often feel oppressive to women today, or at the very least, unrealistic. But at the same time, you suggest that evangelicalism created space for women to flourish in unique ways through their home and the domestic ideal that was part of their identity and this was really surprising for me to read and I'd love for you to talk about that Mm -hmm. a little bit.
1: Yeah so in its you know in what I see as the best version of the domestic ideal the home was a became a haven for both men and women Mm -hmm. right because of the industrial revolution and the dehumanizing kinds of um work that increasingly dominated people's lives. Um and so home became a haven for men. Um now it that got distorted and treated in, in an excessive way such that women then became responsible for maintaining that, you know, on their own and being confined to that domestic realm. That is not what it the domestic ideal is at its best. Um, but the other thing that did happen, and so I talk about that a lot, that's, it's a, it's a long chapter, um, and, and basically it's a good example, actually this chapter is a good example of what I'm trying to do throughout the whole book, is to kind of give, like, the best version of what this idea could be, should be, and was, but then, like, you know, because we're human beings, we take good things and and squeeze the life out of them and and make them excessive, um, and so we that that's this is the the Victorian period is where we got this, you know, this sharp division between public space and private space space and women being relegated to the private sphere alone and um, being responsible for being like the priestess at the altar of the home, which is, of course, um, an excessive idea. Um, but what also was happening is that because of the Industrial Revolution, because of, you know, the increase of of. Of wealth that made, you know, created the middle class and made more people more financially independent and gave them options and choices that they didn't have before. Um, Another thing that happened was that um, the idea, and evangelicals really pushed this idea the idea of the companionate marriage. So rather than men and women marrying simply because their parents saw a great opportunity to join properties or to increase wealth or because they 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 were you know just happened to be next door to one another or of the same class, um, the idea of the companionate marriage again because of of this material wealth that made gave more options and more proximity to different kinds of people, one of the options that became increasingly Important, which I think is still important, is the idea of marrying someone because of their character, like because you admire their character, because you think that they offer something in addition—not just not just money or property or wealth or a title—but because they have character that's compatible with yours, and you are you can be good companions. And for evangelicals, um, they highlighted the biblical idea that that marriage. You know, one of the main purposes of marriage was to assist one another in serving the kingdom, you know, in whatever way that that might be. I mean, for some that, you know, unfortunately meant women had to stay home and all those things. But simply the idea that that a man, a husband and a wife could serve one another, equip one another to to do their kingdom work. um, That's an evangelical idea. And that is, you know, that is what made it possible and not just possible but a, imaginable and um worthy of pursuit uh to marry someone because you love that person and you love their character and so i think that's a great gift and um that's something that does transform the home and it transforms relationships um and it gave women the option of you know it, it again we can we can look at um Pride and prejudice, uh, one of my favorite examples, you know, early 19th century, even before the Victorian age, we have, we have a Elizabeth Bennett, who is in very, she's still in very constricted circumstances, right? She can't, she can't, she must get married or, and her sisters must get married or there will be no uh, financial support for them. They're only going to get married to, you know, men in a certain class. Um, So lots of constrictions, yet here she is a person who chooses for herself out of, you know, the even few options, the person that she's compatible with. She has to learn a lot along the way, but she's able to reject someone that she finds odious and marry the person that she eventually comes to love and admire. That's like, that's revolutionary. That's revolutionary. And um, evangelicalism contributed a great deal to that.
0: Let's talk about your chapter where you discuss empire and you talk about the way there are these long threads that connect overseas missions work and evangelicalism with business and politics. And although there's so many good things, there's also a dark underbelly to the whole endeavor. And you write you write um, something that really struck me. You say, whichever way they are made empires expand by dominating rather than loving their neighbors so i'm curious for you to um talk about that a little bit more and in particular i'm wondering if there are ways that you've seen threads like this in the academic world
1: Mm -hmm. so yeah so empire is a little bit different from the other chapters in the sense that um empire is a, a concept or metaphor that um that the way I treat it, it's pretty much entirely negative. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, you know, we and it's not, em- empires obviously didn't begin with evangelicalism because people, you know, have been building empires for as long as human beings have have lived. But you know, evangelicalism arose at the same time as the British Empire did. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you really can't separate the expansion of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. With the expansion of evangelicalism. And I kind of, and again, I didn't really, you know, it, it in the process of writing this book is when I was connecting some of these dots, is that you know evangelicalism in 21st century America um is really, you know, it, not entirely but overwhelmingly influenced by ideas of empire. Mm-hmm. Um like building empires, building mega churches building publishing industries in even influencers right yeah. uh, that you know i don't know how that works when people say i'm an influencer or whatever that means but you know influencers that are making money and 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 changing algorithms by the content they create these are all ways of building empire and they're part of our our dna as evangelicals it's almost like we don't know how to be Small and quiet, mm. and um, and peaceful, and you know, like Jesus, I guess. In 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 some ways, it was not about empires at all. Um, and as an evangelical, I, I, you know, if 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 you see me sort of struggling as I'm talking about this, it's because I I'm still going through a process where I'm realizing, you know. I've grown, you know, I am evangelical, I've been influenced by this, and I'm still trying to find my way past, like, evangelicalism, which I am, um, and Jesus, right, and, Mm -hmm. and where, where Jesus has been kind of lost or added to so much that we, we, we've lost, you know, what his vision is, um. So that's what I'm kind of working out in that chapter. But you've asked, you know, you've asked a a hard but interesting question about how this plays out in the university setting. You know, and I think, um, you know, I'm someone who, as I said before, was a Christian in a very um, secular, liberal university that was hostile to Christianity. So in those days, I felt like I was being oppressed by my neighbor rather than love by my neighbor and yet I and, and those things continue on. we see you know we see um, Christians today who feel oppressed by their secular mm-hmm. neighbors in the university but we also and we also see Christians sort of responding in like by trying to you know get rid universities of diversity equity and inclusiveness departments. Uh, and you know, and and so it's like each side is swinging at the other side. Mm. Um and I, you know, again, these are the things that make headlines. I'm not saying that 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 other things don't happen sort of behind the scenes, but what we're seeing, it seems like, is one side trying to dominate the other rather than kind of finding the way of virtue, which is, you know, for to get rid of the excess on all sides. Um, to love one another, listen to one another, be okay with disagreeing with one another and to make room, you know, in a really inclusive way for all of uh, the ways that we can be academics and be human beings um, who are not all necessarily Christian um, or necessarily any one thing. But um, I mean, that is what I think the great, experiment american experiment is supposed to be um and our universities can and should be um, but we live in these times where we're just kind of trying to cancel one side is trying to cancel out the other which is another form of empire
0: gosh yeah cancel culture Mm -hmm. wow okay well you um so you started talking about i think our next our next topic which is reformation you mentioned the reformation um a little bit a little while ago but also here, I'm, I'm really curious to hear um, about your vision for the future. So you do have this this chapter on Reformation, and you talk about the fact that we might need some reforming in today's evangelical culture. So um, you you started to talk about this when thinking about the university, but I'm really curious to hear how you envision the future and um how evangelicals can start moving forward with integrity maybe in a new way as we look mm-hmm. at the at our house and <laughs> all the the good and and difficult things that are in there
1: yeah that's you know that's really the hard but important question um i for me it does help to look at history and to look at things in broad sweeps i think everyone that i know now um feels like this we're living in this moment where everything's shifting and it's just hard and we never some of us myself included never really saw it coming and it's confusing and disorienting um but when we look at history we look at you know in five you know 500 or 1000 year chunks we see that the church has gone through a lot of shifts and schisms and reforming with capital r um and what the moment we're going through now um, in comparison to those, I don't, you know, I think I think history will tell whether it's as dramatic and substantial a shift. I think that's going to take a while. We won't know that in a couple of years or 10 years even. Um, it may be that, you know, that the historians who write half a century from now or half a millennium from now can can point to this moment and see something as as big as a schism or a reformation. Um, with a capital R, um, it feels like they might, but yeah. um, <laughs> I we won't. I don't think most of us will be alive to to see the results. And so, you know, even if we just use the word small R reform for this moment, there there is. I know I don't see how anyone could disagree that there um, there aren't things that we're seeing now that maybe were there all along, but are being unveiled. I mean, that I talk about the word apocalypse. Um, you know, which is literally an unveiling or revelation, um, and you know, so we are we're seeing again. Some of us, some people have seen it long before, but uh, for me, I'm seeing kind of the racism and the sexism and the misogyny and the abuse that has been effectively covered up for um, a long time. And many of us are seeing it. Thanks, you know, we're undergoing something that is akin to the rise of print culture um, in entering or being in the midst of a digital culture right? and yeah. so that is doing a lot of the same things that the that that the printing press did you know 5 or 600 years ago um and so the only answer i have now other people might have more specific things and the historians might be able to see more but the only thing i know now is is what i'm really trying to do in this book is to set to is to just model and say we've got to strip away try to see what is cultural versus what is Christian and what is of, you know, of human beings and human institutions versus what is really of Christ and just seek Christ and seek him as the way. Um, again, knowing will never, you know, be entirely apart from human culture until the new heaven and the new earth, but still seeing the difference because whatever is true of the Christian faith is true for all times and all places and all people, not just 21st century American evangelicals. And, you know, we might have our preferences and have our traditions, and those are good. God God put us in this culture to have those, but we still have to recognize and discern the difference between those things and what is, you know, transcendent and eternal.
0: Yeah. And you do such a a wonderful job in this book of raising those questions and in a gentle way raising them showing us the way that they these different um ideas these different imagination spaces have been a gift to us but also that let's ask some new questions and let's dig into this it's really it's a it's a really good read so I'd love I'd love for us to turn for a minute to talk specifically about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. And I'm wondering if is there anything that you'd like to highlight, particularly for women in academia as they explore these kind of blind spots of evangelicalism?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question. And I think um yeah, I mean, I, I I think one thing I'll just you know share what I've kind of learned personally, and that is I think I was blind to blind spots. I think I think I'm someone who I've had a good experience overall in academia and in Christian academia, and part of that is because I'm in um, a field that is you know, okay for women to be in, like English, you know, so, uh, and so in that sense, I wasn't always pushing edges or boundaries that other women have, and so it made it easy for me to feel like I was accepted as a woman, um, and to not um, uh, come up against um, the obstacles that other women have, and so, uh, but then I, I have more recently, I think, and so, and I've also watched other women, and so, I think it's, um, I think it's just that I think we should not um, expect the worst or always be looking out for the worst, but also not to be wearing rose colored glasses either. Mm. Um, And that, you know, I mean, I don't think that's anything profound, but I think because we all come from very different sets of experiences, it was easy for me, I think, to just sort of assume my experience was normative or that you know that it would always be the same um and that's something we just need to be maybe wary of and to be listening to what other women experience um and and not be blind to um to things that that we may need to see um yeah
0: yeah yeah it seems like um we're all needing to kind of boost our critical thinking skills a little mm-hmm. bit these mm-hmm. days yeah
1: and I think you know I, I I often say to my students the human history is a pendulum swing from one extreme to another mm-hmm. and I think most of the people listening to this I, I I think I most would probably agree um that we are going to a, through a pendulum swing in an opposite direction now so so for example you know my background is in as a Southern Baptist um the Southern Baptist, Church and world that I knew and was part of twenty years ago is not the same one today. Yeah. Um, there are some forces that are moving it, you know, in other directions that were not the ones that I, you know, signed up for, so to speak. And so that can be, you know, like I said before, some of us are going through sort of a disorientation and, you know, and and feeling a little dazed and confused. Um, but I think just just if I can just say many of us are experiencing that and and pendulums do swing. And so um, I saw recently some, I don't know if it was an article or some headlines or just a comment. Um, It it may even be referring to a study that that when people reach about the age of 50, which I'm over, um, it is common for them to feel like everything's changed. Interesting. Yeah. And so I was like, I found comfort in that, but I also wanted to say, no, wait, it really is changing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's a little perspective to ponder that I still haven't figured out because I really do feel like things are changing. But right. um, it's been like more than 50 years, so maybe I'm due. So,
0: <laughs> Well, how else can readers follow you and your work and what's on the horizon? You mentioned a Substack newsletter.
1: Yeah, well, for those who haven't um, been following my journey, I very recently left academia, um, so I'm not in a teaching position now. uh, And so anticipating missing the classroom very, very much. I did start a Substack newsletter um, that I hope I can kind of, you know, treat as a substitute classroom just to share um, the things that I love, like poetry and literature. and, And so that would be like an ideal way to just come, you know, Read my newsletter. Um, sign up for it. It's free. Um, support is optional, but I really just want to build a community of 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 you know of, of readers and thinkers um, that can duplicate the kind of discussions that I like to have in the classroom. So that's uh, the name of my newsletter is the Priory. Um, nice. <laughs> As, as someone with a Catholic background, you might be able to appreciate that. Like that yeah. um, and if you read my first newsletter, you'll you'll hear that, hear that whole read that whole story and also a little bit more about why that name is so um, fitting for this stage in my life. And so, yeah, that would be a great way to to find me.
0: As Karen mentions at the beginning of this interview, people often need help learning what questions we even need to ask. And this is certainly a book that can help us do that as we think about our faith and its impact on our daily lives. I hope you pick up a copy of the evangelical imagination on sale everywhere books are sold. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Karen talks about responding to those pressures that come with life. When you're a woman who hasn't had children, the women scholars and professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast— you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Karen.
1: It's interesting because this has actually come up um, a couple of times in, in recent days through emails and conversations that I've had. And the thing that I'm suddenly sort of keenly aware of, probably because of this book that I just wrote, is how much our social imaginary about women and families and children, especially in the church, influences our own feelings about childlessness. Mm. Um, So to say that another way um you know i i think it's normal and natural for many women to desire to have children and and um to feel disappointed when that doesn't happen whether by choice or, or circumstances just and that can be a natural thing that is authentic and real but i also want to say that whatever part of that might be um authentic to that woman um, is hugely multiplied and exacerbated by a social imaginary in which um, that's always seen as a disappointment or a failure or a lack um, or something that needs to be explained. And so, a different social imaginary would lead to different experiences of our, even our own disappointment because we would, because it would be mitigated by other imagining other possibilities. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm speaking in a very theoretical way. I hope it's making sense, but, um, but this arose because I did get an email from a woman who was, who was struggling. She was someone in, in very rooted in sort of a church, Culture and community, which I have been my whole life. But for her, I think it was more of a struggle because, um, because for me, I just always, I just always was pursuing other things and had other things. And even though I always wanted children, um, it just seemed very clear to me that the Lord was doing something else. And I just had that imagination and, and, um, I had that vision. And so many other women don't have that. And so that makes what could anyway be a disappointing experience or, or, you know, something that they have to struggle with um, makes it even worse just because we just automatically assume in our 21st century American evangelical environment that, you know, women are going to get married and have children. And when they don't, that's seen as some sort of aberration. And so I am just am encouraging people to, to help, you know, whether it's for yourself or someone else, we can, we can help expand our social imaginary so that you know things that aren't done are not seen as uh, you know we, that we can look more at what we are able to do rather than what we what we lack or don't do and so uh we just have to first realize that we are existing in a social imaginary and that is influencing our desires and expectations and then ask ourselves well well you know where where is my social imaginary lacking where can i can i grow it you know shift it um and find um you know a more holistic way of viewing you know my own human experience mm-hmm.